All right, well, good morning, everybody. As John said, my name is Luke. I am the associate campus director here at Alpine Logan. I've gotten the opportunity to, to teach quite a bit lately. It's been very cool, and I feel like I'm getting better at it. <laughs> it's been going pretty well, and I, I've gotten to do three messages in the Gospel of John now as we've been working through, and honestly, I keep getting so lucky with the ones that I get. I am really excited about the one I get to deliver today, too. It's, it's about a topic that I have I put a lot of import in it. It's been important to me for very, very many years. And it's one of the things I talk to our youth about the most when, when I talk to them at youth group, because I think it's, it's so, so important to have a good perspective about this topic in a Christian faith. And to get into it, I want to give us a little bit of context to what we've studied the last couple of weeks. We're, we're now in the fourth week in chapter 10 of the book of Mark, and we've gotten a lot of great stuff out of the chapter already. We started with Jesus talking about the, the original plan for, the, for marriage on earth. And we saw this as he, as he was contrasted with the Pharisees. They were asking him questions about divorce, looking for ways to justify divorce for themselves. And Jesus countered with what was the original plan for marriage, which is a, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Then we moved on to the idea of having faith like a child, which is kind of a Christian cliche that we, we say a lot, but it's a good one. It's really beautiful to think about that image. Children just take things for what they are. They don't try to change them or fix them or improve them. If that thing is good, they accept it for what is good, and they do it with sincerity. And last week, we got to hear Pastor John's message about what we can do to inherit the kingdom of God. In that passage, we saw a rich man come to Jesus and ask what he must do to inherit it. And Jesus responds to the rich man saying, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are confused by this, and he responds to them patiently in their confusion and explains what's going on. But they're confused because at that point, riches to them, that must have meant that this man was blessed. He had favor from heaven. How is this guy who's so blessed not going to get to heaven? But that wasn't the point that Jesus was trying to make. The point was that it's impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven without God. The man's riches could do nothing for that. And his reliance on his riches, in fact, would become a detriment to what should have been his total dependence on Jesus as the, the one and only person who could bring him salvation. And that brings us to today, where we get to look at his journey on the road to Jerusalem and what the disciples and other surrounding people were working through as they, they heard him share a little bit more wisdom with them. And as we've come to see over the past several months working through this book of Mark, Jesus never let a teachable moment go untaught. So we get another really great little lesson today in, in this passage, and it goes along very well with the last three that we've gotten in this chapter, all of these being about discipleship. And it just goes to show how well Mark wrote this book and how, how well it's organized and it's divinely inspired. It becomes very clear when you compare all these things together. It's, it's very clear that Jesus intended for these lessons to be cataloged just like this, in this order, so that when we come up with the same questions now that his disciples had 2,000 years ago, we can see the answers delivered with the same care and the same attention and the same love that they received from Jesus face to face. In our passage today, we, we see Jesus predict his death for the third and final time. We saw the other two predictions in chapters 8 and 9, and in those moments, the disciples were really confused about what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand that he was going to die, or why he would die, or that he even had to die for them. 
This time, we see Mark write it down with, with more details. He sets the scene very specifically. We see Jesus and his disciples on the road, making their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is leading them. He walks out ahead of them, is what, what Mark says. And this is important, which we'll read in a minute. This was no accident. He wrote it this way on purpose. And just like the previous two predictions... Jesus says what's going to happen, and the disciples come up with some ridiculous thing to say back to him that has nothing to do with what he's just talked about. But then he manages to turn it around and answer a question that I don't think they even knew they had. And it's a question that every single Christian for the rest of time is going to have to consider for themselves, including you and me. And I want to ask you that question today. What are you expecting from a pursuit of God we saw in Pastor John's message last week a little bit of what the disciples were expecting from a pursuit of God because they were so confused when, when that rich man, it would be so hard for him to enter the kingdom of heaven because they saw his riches. They assumed he was blessed. He had favor. They were expecting that if you followed God, you would receive some sort of worldly profit, worldly payment, some material blessing in their lives. So what are you expecting? Is it something like that? There are so many churches and pastors nowadays that are preaching that expectation. The name it and claim it sort of gospel, the prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy all the time. So right now, there's a lot of famous, happy, healthy, wealthy pastors trying to share this great news they think they have, that when you follow Jesus, you can get exactly what you need from the world, that it's going to give you everything that you want. But is that true? What have you guys allowed to shape that expectation? Have you allowed teachings like this to seep into your heart a little bit? P pastors that are rich. Maybe it's social media influencers who quote verses out of context to support an idea like this. Or, or maybe it's other books and materials you read online or other podcasts. I think that everybody has heard this message, and we've probably allowed ourselves to believe it a little bit. But the question we need to ask is this. What does Jesus say? What did he tell the disciples that they could expect from a pursuit of God? And does he ever promise any of this worldly profit and prosperity to his followers? So let's get into our passage and see. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. It says, They were now on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed on, to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. So if we look at verse 32 again, we see that Mark stated they are on the way to Jerusalem. They are on a journey. They are not at the destination yet. And it says that Jesus is walking ahead of them, and they're following behind. We get a literal picture of Jesus leading them and them following. But where are they following him to right now in this passage? To Jerusalem. To betrayal. To being mocked to being spit upon, to being flogged, to being murdered. They're following him towards horrible suffering 
and ultimate sacrifice of his life. I'm not sure they knew entirely what that would mean for them. In fact, I'm actually quite sure they had no idea what that would mean for them, based on what James and John say to Jesus afterwards, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But even before he tells them what to expect, it says that that they're filled with awe as they follow him. They're amazed as they're watching Jesus lead them towards Jerusalem. And why were they amazed? As the information in this gospel has gotten more specific, and Mark is retelling this story that's been recounted to him by Peter, he begins to record more details about what's going on. And we can see that the disciples are really starting to understand that Jesus is a man who is going to keep the promises he has made to them. He is a man on a mission. And that mission has been revealed. It's it's truly to save the whole world. They're seeing his resolve right now as he walks ahead of them, focused on his ministry, on this mission. He has predicted his death to them already, and he's not hesitating to walk straight towards it. This is what he came for. Nothing is going to stop him from accomplishing this mission and making the sacrifice that needs to be made for these disciples who have given up everything to follow him. So they're in awe as they watch him on his way. But the passage also mentions that there were others who were with him, following him towards Jerusalem. And these others were not filled with awe. They were afraid. Why? Well, we need to remember that the religious leaders of the time were not very big fans of Jesus. In fact, they didn't like him very much at all. And Jerusalem was where they all hung out, and they did all their religious stuff. So these people following Jesus are probably scared of what's going to happen when they show up at Jerusalem associating with this man that all the religious leaders hate so much. And we also need to remember that these people were not his disciples. They had not taken the leap of faith that the disciples had. They weren't truly followers of Jesus yet. They were still thinking about it. They were still contemplating it. And they were still trying to figure out what it would even look like. They didn't know what to expect, and it must have felt like they were wandering straight into the unknown. In order to be first, you must be This man that was running around saying confusing things like, in order to be first, you must be last. They, he just told a rich man to sell all of his belongings so that he could give to the poor. They saw the disciples as examples, and they saw that they had given up everything to follow Jesus. They had left their jobs, their money, and their families behind. So they're probably thinking, is this what we're going to have to do? What are we going to get ourselves into with this guy? And maybe this is how some of you feel today. Maybe this is something that you've wrestled with before, you're still wrestling with, and you're scared to make the jump into becoming a Christ follower. Well, Jesus has more to say about what it means to follow him in this passage. We look at verses 33 and 34, and we see that he pulled the disciples aside and got very explicit about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. This is the most explicit that he gets about his death. We can compare this to the passages in chapters 8 and 9 when he predicted earlier, both of them coincidentally in verse 31. And it's much more specific this time. So he's removing the mystery of the unknown, at least for his disciples as he's pulled them aside. He's told them exactly what they're walking into. He's told them exactly what to expect for following him. 
And it's a big deal that he uses his death as an example again. The last prediction that he did, the previous one, in chapter 9, was in a lesson about humility, about what true greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like, and that is to be humble and serve others. And Jesus used his example of, of going to his own death to show that he, the Son of Man, God himself, for whom and through whom all, of the, all things were created, would exemplify humility by going to his own death and sacrificing his own life. And this time, in this prediction, we see Mark tell us that he was leading the disciples straight to it. Jesus is a leader, even in suffering. He's not left anyone to suffer alone. But he has shown us that suffering does lie ahead. So Jesus has cleared up what the disciples should expect. They, they can expect something like this after giving up everything to follow Jesus. So the fear of the unknown is removed for them. But honestly, it sounds kind of terrible. So I'm not scared of the unknown anymore because I know that everything coming up is scary. Should I be scared of walking into this suffering with this Messiah who's going to die? It's a tough pill to swallow when you hear this news. So I can't blame James and John for what they say next, but really, really, it is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to say. They are so infallibly stupid. <laughs> but Jesus is so infallibly loving and forgiving to them. Every single time he predicts his death, he tells them exactly what he's going to do, exactly what his mission is and his goal is, and they change the subject immediately and ask him for stuff. But Jesus is patient with them. He doesn't reprimand them or, or scoff at them or, or scorn them. He teaches them exactly what they need to hear in those precise moments. Moving forward in the passage, we read, read this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor, which is already a funny thing to do when you think about who they're talking to. But Jesus responds, what is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So we see in this interaction, these two guys are so excited about this unknown future, which is great. It's really sweet, honestly. Like they're so excited to follow Jesus. But I think they might be in denial about the suffering that he just told them about. And then you start to think about what they really say when they go to the God of the universe and they say, hey, Jesus, could you do us a favor? In the ESV and NIV translations, it actually says, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I, if somebody told me that I, they wanted me to do whatever they asked of me, I would say no. I'd probably be a little upset because it's such a ridiculous thing to ask me. But Jesus doesn't get angry with them. He actually just asks them what their request is. What do they want? This interaction is just like a kid asking a parent for something. If, you're, if your kid asks you for McDonald's while you're on the way home from the, the grocery store, you don't get mad at them for asking, but you do have to tell them, we're probably not going to go to McDonald's. And these guys aren't even just asking for McDonald's, right? They're, they're asking for glory. They're looking for spots of honor. They're looking for prosperity. They're still in this mindset where they, they expect that following Jesus will lead them through some checklist that's going to earn these things for them. 
But here's how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? So Jesus does not miss a beat in returning the focus of of these two disciples to literally what he just told them about. They've asked for a place of honor and for him to grant them glory, but he instead offers them a cup of suffering. And James and John, in their zeal, looking for this glory, they respond, oh yes, (laughs) we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my cup, my bitter cup, and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. He says here that it's not even an option one way or another. They will indeed drink from his bitter cup and be baptized in the baptism of suffering. They don't get the glory until the suffering has been done. And even then, it's not the glory that they're asking for. And they really thought they could just keep this checklist and earn their way. They thought they could ask Jesus to do them a favor and put in a good word for them, and they'd end up with thrones right next to his. They're thinking, yes, we'll suffer so that we can have a seat of honor. They're essentially saying, this is still about us and what we can do. If we do this for you, what can you do for us? They still have this transactional idea of a relationship with Jesus where they've deluded themselves into thinking they can do anything for him and he would turn it into something that they want. But he tells them they will drink from this cup of suffering. And he's not saying they will earn these seats of honor by doing it. He's saying that simply to follow, there will be a price to pay. So I said earlier, he cleared up the unknown for the disciples by explaining this to them. He's he's saying they are going to expect a cup of suffering. But the journey, everything that lies ahead is still a little bit mysterious. And you might be thinking along the lines of, Well, there sure are a bunch of people out there of super easy lives. (laughs) There's a lot of rich, successful Christians out there. And what about all those pastors who are preaching the prosperity gospel? If those pastors really are happy and super rich, how do I get on board with that good news? In reference to those pastors, pastors who are taking advantage of their church to become personally wealthy, I believe they will have a lot to answer for when they meet God face to face. But as for the rest of us, just regular Christians, some Christians who maybe are financially well-off, who are financially successful in this world and don't, have, don't seem to have a lot of troubles in their life, Jesus isn't saying that every person's life is going to be filled with an equal amount of trial and an equal amount of tribulation. The journey is still into the unknown. We don't know exactly what lies ahead. Your life might be full of trials. Or it might be a privileged life in the upper middle class of rural Utah where most of your physical needs are met. The point is that there is no promise of your best life right now in this world in the Bible. There is, in fact, a promise of suffering. That if you follow Jesus truly, you will be called to make sacrifices. 
you will be called to suffer. Just like the rich man in last week's passage, you are called to give things up. Your hope in salvation is not in those things that you're called to give up. It's not in your position, but it's with a person. And what is possibly the most misunderstood and misquoted verse in the Bible has a lot to say about this. It's Philippians 4, 13. It says, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And that's true. But we see people quote this all the time when they're, they're talking about taking on some new difficult endeavor. While they're talking about trying to get a promotion or, or, or learn something new, we see athletes painted on their faces all the time because they're thinking, oh yeah, I've got this big game because God's behind me. But when Paul wrote this verse, he was not talking about becoming the next great athlete or the next great writer or executive or musician or whatever. He wasn't talking about God backing you in your personal or prideful endeavors. He was talking about drinking this cup of suffering. Let's read this previous verse now for context. 4.12 says this, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This context changes the meaning of that verse a little bit. Paul, at this point, had lived a life of plenty, but he's also lived a life with nearly nothing. Sometimes, through his journey, he was blessed to have all of his needs met, but sometimes he was drinking from the cup of suffering on an empty stomach. I know that I've had to learn this lesson, too. I've learned to live with almost nothing. I went through a season of my life where I couldn't even pay my rent. I had just gotten back into the country after several months on a study abroad, and I couldn't find a job because I had a new school schedule that I couldn't find a job that would work with. But God was, was faithful to provide. He provided to me through a community of people who were able to so support me and help me in these, these months where I was struggling a lot. And then later, he provided me with multiple jobs that worked with my schedule so I could pay those people back. Now, the rest of the year was still tight financially. I wasn't rolling in the dough, but... God was faithful, even though I missed my meals sometimes. And no matter what comes, Christ gives us strength to weather it. Because he drank the cup of suffering first. And this is possibly the most important thing to remember. Jesus led the way to suffering. He didn't spare himself. And he doesn't ignore the suffering that we go through. He'd put himself through it again. And now we come back to our passage in Mark, it's verses 41 through 45. And we, start, we see that the, when the other ten disciples hear about what James and John asked Jesus, they weren't particularly happy about that. This is our last chunk of scripture in, in Mark today. It says, when the, the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is where Jesus manages to turn this situation into a miraculous teaching moment. As there begins to be some infighting among his disciples, 
He calls out the misunderstanding that James and John had about what they were trying to do and earn, and he brings the focus back to his personal mission and what he was trying to do for them. He himself is going to give up his life as a ransom for many. And this is an example that he asked the disciples to follow, and they all did, by the way. Church history would tell us that 10 of the remaining 11 disciples after Judas were martyred or killed for their faith. John was the only one who lived on into old age, but he still had plenty of struggles. But as we look at Jesus' response here, we see that he understands why the other disciples are angry at James and John for what they've asked. Because these two guys asked him for a place of power, a throne next to his. They wanted authority. But they left out all the other guys. So the other ten are upset because they don't want to be subjected to these two dudes who are no better than them. They've spent their whole lives subjected to Roman rule, being part of a government they didn't choose. They've been paying taxes to a power-mongering empire that they didn't want to belong to. They've heard their whole lives that they'd be liberated from men like this by a conquering Messiah, liberated from men who abused their power. So they're angry at James and John when they ask for a seat of power. And Jesus tells them this to comfort them. But among you, it will be different. He doesn't ask them to be different. He doesn't tell them, you better be different if you want to earn your glory. He says simply, it will be different among you. Not because it'll earn them favor. Not because it'll get them a spot next to him. Not because it'll make their position any better. And not because they'd get anything out of it at all. But just because that's what the Son of Man himself came to do, was to make it different. To serve others. See, the more you follow Jesus, the less you're interested in your glory and the more you're interested in his. And when he gets all the glory, you get all the grace. And this is a beautiful ransom that he paid. This is the scandal of grace that we sing about often here on Sundays. This is that the Son of Man, the only person who ever lived a life without sin, the only person who would ever be deserving of a seat next to the Father, the Messiah who is somehow both fully God and fully man at the same time, who shouldn't have had to drink from the bitter cup of suffering, drank his fill anyway. He came to serve. He came to give his life, to pay a debt that we all owe and do it as a ransom for many. Again, this is the third time he's predicted his death. And it's the third time that he says something along the lines, the first must be last, and you must be a slave to everyone else. And anything that's worth Jesus saying three times has got to be worth paying attention to. The Greek word translated for slave in this verse is duolos, and it literally means a slave, somebody lower than a servant, the lowest and last possible person in this society. And this is the third time Jesus says this mind-blowing, revolutionary idea to his disciples, that a slave, the last person in their society would come first. This would sound ridiculous to them. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He goes so far as to say that I, the Son of Man, have come to serve even them. 
I would go so far as to ransom them from the debt they owe to death because of their sin, because to me they are worth it. He came as a humble servant to do that. So what are you expecting from Jesus? Are you expecting a conquering king who is going to come in and remove all the problems in your life and liberate you from everything in this world that is troubling you? Or do you expect the humble servant that came to serve us all? Well, he could be both. Because by being this humble servant, he became a conquering king. But he conquered so much more than the troubles of this life. He conquered the troubles of eternity. He conquered death and he conquered sin. He came as a humble servant to liberate anybody who would believe in him from the grave. Now I want to ask you our first question again. What are you expecting from the pursuit of God? I confess, and I, I, I know this sermon might make it sound a little bit intimidating, a little bit bleak. <laughs> I have a tendency to do that. At the beginning of the sermon, I said I love talking, talking about this topic. And it's like, well, you like talking about how bad life is. No, I like talking about how good God is in the middle of all of our troubles. Don't be discouraged by this. Followers of Jesus are told that our lives are going to have troubles. They're going to have struggles. They're going to have suffering. But remember that we don't serve some distant God who isn't concerned with our problems. We serve a God that would take on the same suffering again and again if it meant that we'd have a chance to be with him in heaven. And truly, it's worth it. So this journey with Jesus, it's an unexpected one. Ultimately, God has called us to have the same resolve walking towards our sufferings that Jesus had on the way to his so following him doesn't mean that you will be wildly successful here on earth. It doesn't mean you'll have all the money that you want. It doesn't even mean that you're going to have all the money you need to provide a great life for your family or that you'll have enough to go around. But it means so much more for your eternity, and that is what should give us hope now. I want to close with one final scripture. It's one of my favorite ones in the whole Bible. It's Romans 5, 1 through 5 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we as Christians have a hope and a salvation that would have been impossible had it not been for the suffering of Jesus. And Paul lays out the process of gaining access to that hope right here in this short passage by living a God-honoring life. But we have to look and see that the first step is to glory in our suffering. Suffering comes first. And then it culminates in a confident hope of salvation. And it will never, ever put us to shame. For we know how dearly God loves us. That he would lead the way in suffering. That he wouldn't even spare himself, but he would take part in it. He'd lead the way to it. While we were still sinners, 
to pay a price that we owed, to provide us a salvation we could never earn and we could never deserve. And that's not even where the story ends. It doesn't end with Jesus' death because three days later, he rose again. So we don't follow Jesus to death, but to eternal life for anyone who would accept it. And though he has called us to follow him into suffering, that is not where the path ends. He has also called us into resurrection and into life and into hope. And if you want to take part in this, please come talk to me or come talk to Pastor John or another leader. We would love to talk through it with you and pray through it with you. Let's pray. God, we lift you up and we praise you as our, our, our King and our Messiah and, and our Savior. God, thank you for setting the example of facing your suffering head on and doing it as a sacrifice for many. I ask that as we leave here, we would all have that same attitude, God, that you would provide us the strength that you've promised to do all things, that all things would be made possible in your name, God, that we would learn to live in every situation. And I ask that anybody who is in this room who is going through a particularly tough time of suffering and struggle, God, that they would, they would be blessed by you, by your presence in their life, that you would reveal yourself to them however you see fit, God, that if that's meeting the needs that they have, that you would do that. If it's something else, God, I ask that you would, you would reveal yourself that way and that your will would be done in their lives. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Well, you guys have, have joined us on a, a great Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the month, and this is when we at Alpine have decided to take communion, and we invite anybody who has a relationship with Jesus to take communion with us. On your way in, you would have seen a table that was covered in these little, these little cylinders full of juice. If any of you missed one on the way in and you would like one now, we have some in the back. Our ushers can bring them to you. Just go ahead and put your hand up, and they can, they can come deliver one to you. But this communion is a, a ritual that, that we've been commanded to do by Jesus, the night of his crucifixion, he had one last supper with his, his disciples. And he broke a piece of bread and handed it around and said, This is my body, which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he, could, he took a cup of wine and passed it around and said, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And now we get to do that today. As you look at this, this thing, you can pull off the top layer and there's a little wafer that's going to represent the body of Christ. And then you can pull off the second layer and there's a little bit of juice in there that will represent his blood. And I'm going to pray for us quickly as we, as we commune with God. And then I'm just going to leave you guys a couple of minutes to do what you need to do with, with your Savior. Jesus, we thank you again for your sacrifice that you've, you've given your life for ours that you've ransomed us from this, this debt that we owe. And I thank you for this, this ritual of communion that we, we now get to do in remembrance of you, God, that it's a great reminder of, of this sacrifice, of, of the gravity of what you have done for us. And I ask truly that that would set in on all of us today as we do this. And God, I ask that you would search our hearts and, and reveal things to us that we don't even know about ourselves, places in our lives that we need your presence and God, let us not live in shame for those things, but, but let us experience the forgiveness that you, you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.